Welcome to Lended Lopate at Large. I'm Lended Lopate. Although freedom is an ideal all sides of the American political spectrum espouse, the latest book by Vanderbilt University historian Jefferson Cowie reveals a long history of the ways white supremacist ideas of freedom have become deeply embedded into our politics. Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power, is published by Basic Books and brings Jefferson Cowie to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Leonard. Oh, this is really important stuff. You've (laughs) titled your book's introduction, George Wallace and American Freedom, and you open with Wallace's inaugural address as governor of Alabama, which was, in effect, a defense of Southern segregation. But why do you open the book there? Yeah, the 1963, January 1963 inaugural of George Wallace is one is certainly his most famous speech. Um, but I, I turn it around a little bit because that's the speech where he says segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, which was him drawing the line <clears throat> against the civil rights movement and federal uh, support for civil rights legislation. And but if you go back through that speech, as I did very carefully, you notice he used seg- the word segregation four times. Those three times, one other time. He used freedom or liberty two dozen times. Um, and so I open with an analysis of that speech because um, I'm trying to capture how Wallace saw himself, which was as a defender of a very specific version of American freedom. He saw himself defending the people of Alabama and certainly the people of his own Barber County uh, against the incursions of the federal government that would dictate to them how they had to act. Um, and that would be his words, not mine, of course. And he said in that inaugural speech, let us rise to the call of freedom, loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. So he was issuing a challenge to the federal government. That's right. His entire career essentially is a challenge uh, to the federal government. Uh, he, he made his reputation as the fighting judge of Alabama um, because he, he uh, fought against the Federal Elections Commission uh, of the late 50s. Um, and so w- what we need to understand is that this, this, the connections between this sort of dominating, racialized, white supremacist uh, version of freedom is deeply connected to this anti-federal, anti-statist kind of uh, uh, vision for how America should work. It really goes all the way back to a kind of awkwardly a Jeffersonian Republican value. Well, he uh, was it a matter of freedom is racialized anti-statism. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's the shortest version I could come up with. Um, yeah. So freedom as racialized anti-statism. Um, I want to be clear when I say anti-statism, I really mean anti-federal power because um, these people used state power, local power, and even federal power when it suited their needs. Um, so that anti-statism is really kind of a shortened version for anti-incursion uh, of federal forces in their local affairs. And at that particular point and throughout the history, what that often meant was the federal government threatened the balance of power that they owned in local race and labor relations. In 1964, when he ran for president for the first time, he said, quote, being a Southerner is no longer geographic. It's a philosophy and an attitude. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wallace. So he was saying he was saying that this applied to people all over the country. Yeah, and he actually said that in his inaugural too. He hmm. he was running for president the minute he took the podium in in, in January 1963 in his gubernatorial inaugural, um, and so he begins. This, he he understands that this idea of anti-federal power, this freedom from federal authority, worked not just in the Deep South, but it had a resonance uh, throughout 
the the entire country. And so, you know, he says, you rock-ribbed New Englanders and you patriotic mm-hmm. Midwesterners and stuff, you are all Southerners too. And and he and this is how he begins to um, uh, formulate his national agenda when he runs for president uh, in 64, 68, 72, and 76, um, uh, basically trying to call those powers of federal anti, uh, or anti-federal power um, and, and which is a more sophisticated position than just white supremacy or racism that he that came across in that segregation now, segregation forever phrase, which is actually written by a Klansman. Um, and so by but he read it together, anti-statism, anti-federal power with that, he, he will naturally draw in that now he found he could also appeal to anti-tax types. Uh, people were tired of federal incursion in a variety of ways, right? And so you can create a, a sort of coalition around that anti-federal power agenda. Now, you've written about Wallace before. Does he remain an important figure in Southern politics? And do liberals tend to underestimate his relevance to our history? Yeah. Well, uh, the funny thing about this book is, as you know, it's a local history of this county Barber County, Alabama. Alabama, and um, where Wallace is from. And I actually started researching that county before I figured out Wallace was from there. <laughs> and <laughs> when I found out he was from there and uh, I, was, I was sort of knocked back on my heels and, and realized that it was fate that I should write this because I'd written about Wallace in my 1970s book and other, other books. Um, so, yeah, we underestimate him at our peril, I think, all of us, because it's, it's not Wallace the figure, but, but the idea that he had there and, and that um, he really represents the shifting political uh, dynamics of the, of the late 60s, early 70s, and, and that create the sort of the political foundation of our own time. And that is, as, as, as um, you know, um, Kevin Phillips, Nixon's analyst, uh, analyst uh, back in the day, said that the Wallace voter is moving from a Democratic past to a Republican future. And so here we see the reorientation of the South away from the Democratic Party. We see uh, that uh, a sort of uh, blue collar, white blue collar uprising against the Democratic uh, establishment. And we see um, moneyed interests also moving away from the Democratic Party, all surrounded, all, all sort of clustered around this idea that federal authority was uh, questionable. Um, yeah. So would Wallace today be a MAGA Republican? That's an interesting question because Wallace, you know, late in life, Wallace looked around and, and, and basically said, everybody's talking like I was talking Clinton is talking like Reagan was talking like them you know he he was um at one point he said he he wished he had royalties on some of his phrases because everybody was talking like him um he was a deeply deeply partisan individual though so whether he I I presume he would have eventually shifted the Republican Party like Strom Thurmond other people did um but he he uh one of my favorite quotes about George Wallace is somebody said that um, if you if you dropped Wallace in the Albanian countryside, he'd, he'd be, you know, a member of the Politburo in a number of years. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't matter what the expression was. He was a political beast and, and his blood pumped politics and he would find a way to rise to political power no matter what the partisan thing is. So my guess is probably, except he was really shrewd, a lot shrewder than a lot of the MAGA Republicans. Mm-hmm. You say you began working on this book with a look at Barber County, Alabama. How far back into its history has Barber County been engaged in struggles over land, citizenship, and democracy? For example, um, when when white settlers wanted land from the Indians. Right. Um, so the the story begins literally with one federal marshal heading into this nine-county region along the Chattahoochee River, the, the border between Alabama and Georgia. And he has orders from Andrew Jackson and his Secretary of War, Cass, to 
get rid of the white settlers who were infringing upon Creek Indian rights, which is not the kind of idea we normally think of as Wallace. Wallace, excuse me, yeah, Jackson. Um, uh, Jackson is the, the guy of the Trail of Tears and Indian mm-hmm. Removal Act, all true. But in this particular case, he was trying to defend th- th- this, this region as a, a Creek area. So he basically sends these marshals in to remove white settlers from Indian lands. You know, this is, goes completely counter to the Jacksonian era narrative. And so from the very beginning, and, and, and the first marshal basically burns the main town in this county, Barbara County, to the ground, not quite to the ground, but several key buildings in the settlement to the ground and pushes everybody out. And so the, the birth of this area is essentially in a fight against federal power, federal incursion into local white rights to seize Indian lands. So they saw freedom as freedom to take land? That's right. That's right. And 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 then those lands were converted into cotton plantations that were worked by slaves. (laughs) Freedom takes on a whole new meaning in this context. That is exactly right. Yeah. So not so this was essentially a contest. I mean, it was a Creek homelands, but it was also happened to be the, some of the most valuable uh, cotton growing land in the world. So there's a thing called the Intruders War, where the uh, federal government clashes against these intruders, these white intruders who are coming in to seize lands. And it eventually all goes to hell. And um, and the Creeks lose. But um, what, what does happen is in the name of white freedom, it becomes a plantation based economy and and slaves are marched in coffles in, in, in westward from the old South plantations into this sort of more vicious frontier kind of uh, cotton capitalism that's emerging in this region in the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s. So the Creek Indians were pushed west. Right. The, the Creek Indians lost. So essentially they gave up, they begged federal government to help them, please. Uh, uh, I have piles of letters of the Creek leaders begging Jackson for more support, more support. His support is tepid. He's not really going to really fight against his core constituency, white uh, yeoman farmers, and he um, eventually gives up. The Creeks then try to fight back when they realize the federal government's not on their side with violence, and they lose. The federal government comes in and crushes the Creek Rebellion, mm-hmm. and they are pushed to Oklahoma, where they actually start a town by the very same name, Eufaula, uh, Oklahoma, that is the main town in Barber County, Alabama. Well, I want to talk about Eufaula in just a moment, but uh, first I want to alert my audience to the fact that I'm speaking with Jefferson Cowie, whose latest book is Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. It's published by Basic Books, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. What about the rise of militant states' rights groups like the Eufaula Regency in the 1950s? Weren't they the first to advocate secession as a viable political option regarding slavery? They were very much among the first. Uh, they were very militant, uh, fire-eating secessionists. But they were very tactical. They, they were not uh, secession at all costs. They were very engaged in a political process of building a coalition to, um, to get out um, and uh, out of the union. And um, so, that, so that they, did, they weren't just sort of kind of completely wild-eyed uh, secessionists. They really proceeded with a tactical vision about how to, how to do this. But the amazing thing to me, Leonard, is, is that they, I'm an historian, you know, I've, I, I do history for a living. I've been doing this for decades. And for the first time, it really dawned on me that these guys had only had this land for 20 years prior to the Civil War. They were willing to die and have other people die to defend mm-hmm. a system that they had seeped in tradition and freedom and all these American values, but it had only been there 
for 20 years. Um, and then they marched off to war. It, it's really an amazing story. And to this day, you know, it's still that area still drips and all this kind of Confederate mm -hmm. nostalgia. And um, I, it really, it really came home to me that it was only one generation of in the, in the deep South and the old, what, what some call the old Southwest Alabama, um, that they were defending something that was brand new, really. Now you look into how four peak periods in the conflict between white Alabamians and the federal government, um, the, 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 uh, the rush, as we were just talking about, to seize and settle lands that belonged to the Creek Nation, Reconstruction, the reassertion of white supremacy under Jim Crow, and the attempts of Wallace and others to nullify the civil rights reforms of the 1950s and 1960s. Is, it, is, is there a continuity there, do you see? Very, you know, variation within a story of continuity. And the, the, the basic continuity is um, that local white people defended their freedom to dominate others against the occasional intrusion of federal authority that threatened that sense of freedom. So back to our Creek story, you see the federal government coming in and threatening their freedom to seize Creek lands. Um, and then the next story, as you've suggested, is about reconstruction. Hmm. Um, the Civil War really didn't really happen directly in Barbara County. So um they they were very instrumental in launching the war and fighting the war but it didn't actually happen there but reconstruction was very very dramatic and that is of course when federal troops occupied the south rejiggered the balance of power backed up black citizenship black voting rights black contract rights things like this not unambiguously by any stretch of the imagination, but compared to anything that had ever happened before, this was an enormous reordering of federal intervention into local affairs. Congress had to establish martial law in the South in order to put even the small gains of Reconstruction into effect. But you write, federal power has proven itself quite consistently by design and by practice to be inadequate to the basic claims of citizenship of its people. Right. That's that's the irony. Right. That the federal the federal government is, is sort of my clay footed, weak kneed hero. Mm -hmm. um, the the federal government comes in, sort of makes promises to the Indians, sort of makes promises to freedmen, sort of makes promises to black citizen, but just enough to kind of stir the pot um, and then get rile up cries for white freedom against federal power and not quite enough to completely deliver the goods and that's a world we live in today i think when we think about say voting rights today so how effective was reconstruction in this area and was it similar to other parts of the south yeah you know it, it reconstruction worked pretty well uh you know there's the great myth that it failed, that, you know, it gave political power to people who weren't ready for it. And there's a lot of pernicious myths about the nature of Reconstruction. But most of them are basically just racist stories. The uh, there were black um, uh, people elected to the state uh, assembly. Uh, there was a, a African-American person who was uh, uh, James Rapier, who was uh, elected to Congress, uh, the United States Congress. Uh, and so this is really a flourishing of democracy backed up by federal bayonets. Essentially, we will make sure that this, this works to the best of our ability. When push came to shove, they weren't there for the freedmen. In 1874, a horrible massacre happened at the polls in which uh, whites just rose up and shot black voters in the streets uh, and destroyed that era of reconstruction for um, Barbara County. And then comes Jim Crow, the reassertion of white supremacy. But that was a right. little later. 
Yeah, and I think the popular you know, belief is that you know, we had the Civil War and then the rise of Jim Crow. And that's not the case at all. Uh, we had the Civil War, then this another 10 or more years of Reconstruction in which, you know, this flourishing of black democracy I mentioned. And then this kind of drawn out, uh, ambiguous kinds of things until the 1890s and the dawn of the 20th century when actual Jim Crow constitutions are passed uh, throughout the Deep South. And for Alabama, that was passed in 1901. Um, but what you see, for instance, emerging almost immediately after the uh, end of Reconstruction in Alabama is uh, the rise of convict labor. So a sort of form of neo-slavery where once the federal government is, it retreats and is partially pushed out, really, by um, militant actions like the, the massacre in Eufaula, um, uh, they, they send um, African-Americans to jail. Uh, and from jail, they're sent into the mines up near Birmingham to mine uh, coal industry. Well, you don't deal with Woodrow Wilson's impact here, but uh, was, didn't he play a role? I mean, they, they were getting mixed signals from Washington, weren't they, all along? Oh, right. Yeah, I call this, you know, this is the... the um, third section of the book, its first one is Indian removal, the second one's Reconstruction. And this third one I call um, Federal Government in Repose, um, mm -hmm. which is to say this is, this is what happens when the federal government is pulling back and sitting on its hands on these questions. And Woodrow Wilson, yeah, I don't, I, I do more with Teddy Roosevelt actually, but um, Woodrow Wilson is kind of an emblematic figure because he's the first Southerner back on the national stage. Uh, the South has played a disproportionate role in national politics prior to the Civil War. And here, here we have a Southerner uh, who essentially believes in segregation uh, back in the presidency. And, and this is, uh, means that local and state governments can pretty much do what they want without fear of federal intervention. And so we see the the disenfranchisement, the segregationist constitutions, the rise of convict labor, mass lynchings, um, all sorts of things that are going on because the federal government uh, has turned its back on um, African-Americans in, in, in the South. And didn't Lyndon Johnson work to transform the 1957 Civil Rights Act into the what he called the weakest bill it could possibly be <laughs> when he was the majority leader? Yes, he did. I mean, you know, Lyndon Johnson is such a political genius that um, both sides thought they won the fight over the 57 Civil Rights Act, um, mm -hmm. and uh, which is exactly how Lyndon Johnson, you know, uh, wanted things to play out. Um, and But that 57... Civil Rights Act, which is a fairly, it's often forgotten, uh, it's a little toothless, uh, but it did set the stage. You know, first you had, uh, you know, just to back up a little bit, you had Brown versus Board of Education a few years earlier in 1954. Um, and so the turn of the Supreme Court, then the rise, uh, Truman was very important, then the Brown versus Board, then the Civil Rights Act of 57. And um, but that's what gave Wallace his uh, sort of rocket boosted his um, po political potential, because prior to that, he was kind of a kind of a populist. Let's pave the roads and let's tamp down in a, uh, uh, the segregation stuff and let's build trade schools and uh, let's see Alabama prosper. After that act, uh, when they demanded the election returns, uh, for Barbara County, that's when he became the fighting judge, pushed against the federal government and realized this is his path to power, um, was fighting against integration. And specifically, he, he, he tried to back off direct attacks on black people and push for a much more sophisticated attack on the federal authority. As you said, it's, uh, you know, the oppression was clanking on the, again on the uh, horizon in the South. For, for, for Wallace, the Civil Rights Act of 57 and beyond 
were essentially just more bayonets lined up on the horizon that were about to uh, take over uh, Southern sovereignty. Well, Lyndon Johnson was a Southerner, but in his defense, in 1965, when he was president, he responded to the civil rights struggles by passing the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, amazing story. Um, yeah, so Johnson. So was he was he betraying the South in a sense? Did, did, did people uh, like Wallace see him as a traitor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, many in the Deep South thought that when Wall and actually on the people on the left and civil rights activists when when thought that when Kennedy was assassinated in November '63, and Wall uh, excuse me Johnson came into power that it was all over, right? Because you, now we just had another Southern segregationist mm. cracker in charge of uh, the federal government and nothing was going to happen. But Johnson was an ambitious, ambitious animal. And he wanted a legacy. He wanted it on his terms. And so with the assassination, the sort of mourning electorate and uh, his own political acumen, he passes the... Um, Civil Rights Act in, in 64, and then fights very hard for the Voting Rights Act in 64. Now, didn't President Franklin Delano Roosevelt overlook Jim Crow racism in order to maintain the support of white Southern voters? Right. This is the irony and the tragedy of the whole New Deal era hmm. is on the one hand. Because we tend to think of him as a as a president who is very involved with with freedom. And That's people's right. Rights. Yeah, the four freedoms. But he also ignored he also ignored a lot of what was going on in Germany at the time. So he's right. a mixed and bag. Jews. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So again, we have to think about politics. Roosevelt um, knew that if he let me back up real quick. You have to understand the structure of the Democratic Party at that moment. It is a Southern party. It's a Southern mm -hmm. and Western party. You know, now we think of it as a Northeastern party and a West Coast party. Um, but we used to but talk about Southern the South Democrats. Was central to the Democratic Party. And if he alienated the South, the White South, mm -hmm. with, um, uh, with anything, including anti-lynching uh, legislation, he was afraid he would lose you know, Social Security, he would lose collective bargaining for workers, he would lose Fair Labor Standards Act, he would lose, you know, everything else. So he steered completely clear of anything that would destabilize the racial order in the Deep South. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jefferson Cowie. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org, or call 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation, or more, by the way, in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. In return to Jefferson Cowie, whose book, Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance, Resistance to Federal Power is published by Basic Books. He is the James G. Stallman Professor of History at, at Vanderbilt University and also the author of four other books. Now, um, you've said um, freedom is not something we can automatically take for granted as a good thing. What do you mean by that? Right. So the way I use freedom, uh, I, I borrow Isn't just from... another word for nothing left to lose. Oh, forgive me. I'm... <laughs> right. Um, um, no, I, 
I think we have to see this as a, you know, it's the American creed, right? It's the one thing everybody believes in. Uh, this is, you know, the, the, the fundamental concept of America. But what does it mean? Nobody knows. Um, and Americans tend to think they're the only ones in the world who enjoy it. And there's an old kind of construct of freedom. There's negative freedom and positive freedom um, that say you have a negative uh, you you have uh, rights against uh, any uh, that people can't take away, like the Bill of Rights. Then you have positive freedoms, like what Franklin Roosevelt offered during the New Deal, that is uh, uh, economic resources so that you can live your life the way you want. Um, but what I do, I'm doing something slightly different. I I, I borrow from a sociologist named Orlando Patterson at Harvard, and he says. He goes back and looks at the entire history of freedom and says, freedom, you could break it apart into three parts. It's like a chord of three notes. Mm -hmm. And the first one we all know, it's sort of civil liberties, freedom from oppression. The second one is the... Go ahead. That's a, a form of anti-statism, no? Kind of, yeah. But it is, it's sort of a, one I think we can get behind, right? Um, that... Um, the, you know, the, yeah, the Bill of Rights uh, will prevent you from expressing yourself in a free way. Now, what that gets used for gets complicated. And the second one is the freedom to build your own political community, to vote, to participate in the construction of your community. This is one we never think about. And the third one is the one I'm really thinking about a lot, to dominate others, even to brutalize others. Um, in some abstract philosophical way, we think that your freedom ends uh, right when you're about to punch me in the nose. But that's not really the case. Uh, uh, one's freedom to dominate, freedom to oppress, freedom to seize power uh, is a key element of it. And that's one of the reasons I got into this whole idea is I, I began to fear the word freedom as it was used by a lot of people. Um, right as we speak, a group uh, that runs by the name of the Freedom Caucus is holding up Kevin McCarthy's uh, um, possibility of being Speaker of the House. Uh, so that that word freedom uh, is, is a highly contested concept, and I kind of wanted to unpack that. Look at this freedom to dominate, where it comes from, and how it gets projected on a national stage. And its meaning has changed a bit over the course of our country. The Bill of Rights didn't apply to state gov uh, governments, only to what Congress could or could not do before the passage of the 14th Amendment. And then some of those powers were trimmed by the Supreme Court. That is exactly right. Yeah. Um, and it's really not until, I mean, the, you know, you, things get advanced and then things push, pull back. Right. So the 14th Amendment um promises uh equal protection to to everybody uh it doesn't really work out it's curtailed in the courts quite dramatically that expands again during the new deal period it expands and then there's a retreat and then it expands again during the civil rights era and now we're sort of in our own a period of retraction after um the last 30 years i think in a lot of ways have been a, a pullback from the victories of the civil rights era much like in parallel though may not as dramatic as the pullback after reconstruction um in which um you know uh, we're seeing voting rights stripped and contested and fought over um when in my opinion the one thing the federal government should be doing is 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 backing every citizen's right to vote unambiguously. So it's just different tactics are being applied. And today, a lot of, of gerrymandering has been a major right. factor and rezoning, redistricting. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, right now, who gets to vote is more important than what people are voting about. Right. That um, who controls access to the polls in what way, whether it's gerrymandering or uh, elimination of, of, of convicts from voting or, uh, you know, purging member, purging voters from the from the uh, registration polls, the whole thing. It, it really it's the contest I, back to 
the late 19th century, who gets to vote becomes uh, as important, if not more important, over any particular piece of legislation anybody wants to support. Should we see the Confederate flags and racist signs at the January 6th Capitol riot as just the most recent manifestation of what you've written about, uh, the, the presence of the Proud Boys and the KKK? Yeah, I do. I, and that I, there I is a still of, a KKK? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the KKK is one manifestation of a broad sentiment, and even that has changed over time. It was a terrorist organization uh, in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. It becomes a little more civically minded, but still scary in the 1920s. Um, and, you know, then it re reemerges in the 1960s, again, as a bit of a terrorist uh, organization. Um, but that's just, I think we get a little too distracted by the KKK. I think, I think there's a, that problem is all over the place if we look closely. Um, and I, I think if you scrape below invocations of freedom by a lot of people, you'll find not too dissimilar sentiments, different tactics, perhaps, but similar sentiments. Are we discussing a current principle of conservative politics, for example, conspiracy theories about the deep state um, in the actions of Republican officials like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who built a case for his reelection in 2022 by banning in the name of individual freedom, classroom discussions of, of gender, sexuality and systemic racism? Yeah, um, you know, and, and of, of individual rights and freedoms, um, which to me seems, you know, stripping academic freedom uh, in the name of uh, individual freedom not to hear ideas strikes me as fundamentally uh, bizarre, yet also connected to this deeper strain that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. And, and going back to Wallace, your opening question, uh, you know, Wallace once said that uh, his American Independent Party was, he called it the Squirrel Party, because uh, it tended to attract all the nuts. And... <laughs> The um, you know, and this is the man himself. And so the anti-status stuff, again, creates a big umbrella from the most whacked out conspiracy theorists to the most tactically wise uh, strategy to reduce taxes. Right. So it becomes a, an, a really big umbrella that can win. Um, elections and provide a kind of cohesion where otherwise there really wouldn't be the type of cohesion we see. So when those guys stormed the Capitol with the Confederate flags and demanding their, their you know, their freedoms and that the, 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 their government has been taken away from them, um, that resonates all the way back to the Civil War. It resonates all the way back to the push against Reconstruction, the seizure of Indian lands. I mean, this is I know historians tend to make this argument it was always thus. Um, uh, but I do think But it's interesting that, that we can't move on. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, there, there's core principles that we have troubles getting around. And I think if I don't want to get overly determinist, because I think it's always kind of conflicted. But if you, you you can often get back to the twin problems of settler colonialism and uh, chattel slavery, right? And and those two things that we want the land and we want the labor to work it end up being very powerful progenitors of a great deal of the types of problems that we experience and and and, and see today. And I'm not I'm not I'm not saying like you know this is uncontestable DNA level thinking but i am saying that there is there are these core ideas that are loose in political ideology and discourse that don't go away very easily um and it takes a lot to overcome them my guest on today's let it locate at large 
here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Jefferson Cowie. His latest book, <clears throat> you excuse me, is Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power, published by Basic Books. You've said that race has to be central to any serious study of American history and that we need to think more critically about the nation's history and challenge many themes that have been taken for granted for generations. Can you um, elucidate on that? <laughs> that, well, that, that's a that's a big question. Um, yeah, we have a little me, bit of time. Let me let me illustrate it through my own sort of intellectual journey. I kind of thought that if we dealt with class questions, uh, redistribution of wealth questions, um, and, and uh, you know, essentially material issues. Um, for a long time, I, I thought that would be enough. I thought that you could sweep questions of class, of race in there and that if if everybody had access to good wages and working conditions and health care and housing, we'd be OK. But the more I struggled with these questions and observed politics and kept watching this racial dimensions, disturbing or, or disrupting uh, in, in very dramatic ways that whole concept, uh, I began to see, you know, we have a lot of work to do on questions of race and how race penetrates so many aspects of American culture. Um, and we, we, need to, we need to deal with those before probably we can really get to uh, other questions that I find, you know, personally would like to see more central to American politics, which is how do we divide the pie? Um, but unfortunately, we're, we're too busy fighting over real who has actual claims over things um, and who can vote and who can't vote and um, and whether this is a well, white person's republic or it's a multicultural democracy. So, so how much of a factor do you see this as being in the growing partisanship in this country? Um, in some cases, even when politicians are shown to have been uh, real fools or liars, it doesn't seem to have affected anything because these other things seem to override them. Right, exactly. And so this goes back, I think, to the post-Civil Rights uh, and Voting Rights Act period in which we begin to see the South, the white South flip Republican, a new era of political polarization. You know, there used to be more like four parties, liberal Republicans, conservative Republicans, liberal Democrats, conservative Democrats. Uh, kind of working in this mishmash of coalitions after, in the post-war era. But after the 60s, this gets defined into basically two tribes. Um, and one tribe um, believes that um, the, the, the country's been taken away from them, basically. That a birthright of of whiteness has been taken away and this also ties into immigration and other things um, and others who are prepared to um, share social and political power and that's uh, when that sort of fundamental thinking I think is at the central turning point of how people think about their politics it almost doesn't matter what any individual thinks and whether you know uh, they're qualified intellectually or politically to hold office as long as they're representing um, your tribe, you're going to vote for them. And I think, you know, um, it's become in some ways more, a little more reified and, and, and uh, sticky and um, uh, there's less mobility than there 
was even in the antebellum period, you know, in which there were actually multiple parties vying for political power in Barbara County, the Whigs and the Democrats, um, prior to the Civil War, um, because they could presume the slave economy. Uh, they weren't fighting over that. But now that we're actually politics is really turning on the question of what the nature of the republic is. I think we have the exact sort of thing that you just said, which is this uh, kind of knee jerk, my guy uh, or the highway kind of uh, politics. But it isn't just race right now. We the same people who are engaged in that kind of partisanship um, have strong positions on on women's issues, on abortion, on sexuality, on on gay rights, a whole bunch of other things. Do you see them as all linked together? Right. That, um, yeah. So in many ways, we're talking about kind of the cultural revolution, of the 1960s um, and that, you know, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you that it is far more complex than than simply race. Uh, and I think we'd have to throw immigration in with that stew that you just mentioned, because after the Hart Seller Act of uh, 1965, which opened up immigration, got did away with this sort of race based immigration pattern that had been uh, instituted in the 1920s. Um, well, we for it took Richard Nixon uh, be, was the president who finally signed a bill that allowed Asians to come into this country. It's um, it's uh, quite yeah. late in our history. The, um, the, the entire uh, his, history of immigration and how this plays into it is a whole other kind of level. But I think what we see, just to pull the lens back to what, where you want, is um, a lot of people feel like they're defending their traditional sensibilities against federal power. So, uh, you know, what happened in the 1960s was not just... Um, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, of course, but on and through the 70s, Roe v. Wade and busing and um, uh, birth control and affirmative action and all of these uh, efforts, power and rights to those who hadn't had it before. And it comes at through mostly the federal government. Um, and the one thing that I think we often forget is, for instance, to return to civil rights, those protest movements of the 1960s weren't just trying to cross Selma Bridge or weren't just trying to uh, integrate a lunch counter or whatever the case. They were trying to trigger federal intervention. They were trying to create federal citizens rather than local citizens. And and that is is happening throughout the culture in the post 60s era in which federal rights and the, the bill of rights becomes federalized really after um after uh, brown versus board and all of the cases that followed in the following 20 years and so the sense of autonomy sovereignty uh uh, uh dominion uh is challenged by by the federal government let me if you if you don't mind let me we, just indulge we have just another example. minute or two left but sure make your point okay please. real quick i was the scales fell from my eyes when i was looking at the the registration drive after the voting rights act of 1965 and and king's lieutenant Hosea williams was trying to figure out well how come some counties have successful voting rights uh have successful uh, voting registration activities and some don't and he couldn't figure it out and then he finally figured out that the difference was certain counties had federal registrars in them and certain counties didn't and that the federal government was the guarantor of federal uh, form of rights against local freedoms to deny those rights. And that, in a nutshell, is kind of what that book, this book is about. Hmm. Some people have wondered whether there's any commonalities between your book and the 1619 Project. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah, I find... Uh, yeah, there are commonalities. Um, I find the 1619 project a little rigid in its conceptualization of history. Like the 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 die, the die was cast, the mold was made, 
and everything falls forward from that. Um, I see it as a little more dynamic, a little more fluid, a little more contested, um, but we are struggling with the same basic questions about uh, rethinking the centrality of race in American uh, political development. Jefferson Cowie is the James G. Stallman Professor of History at Vanderbilt University, the author of four books, the most recent, the one we've been discussing, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power, published by Basic Books. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. Uh, We're at the beginning of a new year, but we are still suffering from some of the problems that we suffered in in the past year. We're a little behind on our rent, and we're a little behind on paying for our our broadcast tower. And we hope that the listeners who have the means to do so will make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with. And you can do that by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution uh, to at the uh, of $50 or more in the name of this show, London Lopez at Large, can uh, receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Freedom's Dominion, Saga of, a Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power by Jefferson Cowan. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And, you know, we, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. Um, and you can do that by um, agreeing to uh, give us $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, and as long as you are willing to do that. Um, and it allows us to plan for the future and not have to worry about being in the kind of hole we're in right now. So, And if you become a BAI buddy, uh, we'll say thank you with a, a tote bag, a BAI tote bag for anyone who becomes one for $10 a month or more. And $10 a month, if you figure it out by by the day, it's just a few pennies a day. But either way, I hope that you'll call right now because WBI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when we'll discuss an important new film called The Invisible Extinction. We'll see you then. 